chapter 2. I mentioned several uh, weeks ago, actually back when we were still in chapter 1, that eventually we would um, address the matter of whether or not uh, true Christians can lose their salvation because of some of the things that uh, Peter says uh, throughout this letter. And uh, this week, this morning, that's what I want to look at specifically. Our text this morning comes from verses 17 to uh, 22, and I want to think uh, very specifically about this matter of apostasy, whether or not true Christians can lose their salvation and and the issue of of assurance. And so we'll look at that this morning from this this passage. Every week, I want you to have your Bibles open so that as we look at each verse, we look at each phrase, you can look down, you can see what I'm talking about. And I especially want that to be the case today as we dive in and and really look at a a lot of what Peter says throughout this, this letter. So 2 Peter chapter 2, we'll begin by reading in verse 17, and we'll read through the end of the chapter in verse 22. Peter's writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, of the false teachers he's been addressing, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them... The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's go again to the Lord. Father, all throughout your word, you not only speak to your people about the glories of the work of Christ, the finished work of his shed blood on behalf of his people so that their salvation is secured, But to all who bear the name of Christ, you exhort through your 
holy apostles and prophets, you exhort them to be faithful, to endure, to persevere, to grow in godliness, to prove their calling and election. I pray that as we have looked at this letter, 2 Peter, as we continue this morning, that we would not presume upon salvation, that we would not simply believe that because we believed at one time, because we were baptized, because we're members of a church, that this is what secures our eternal life, but that we would be trusting wholly in Christ, and from that trust, we would be faithful to His commandments. And so, Father, I pray for our time this morning that you would teach us from your Word, correct us in any errors we may have, and encourage us with your faithfulness, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, all errors and every heresy, that is doctrinal deviation that has ever existed involves taking the words of Holy Scripture and then twisting them. Every error, every heresy begins with the words of Scripture and distorts them. This has been the case since the very beginning of time when you know the serpent in the garden placed a giant question mark over a statement of which God himself had placed a period. You'll remember that God had given a command to Adam, which he gives also to his wife Eve, that you may eat of any tree of the garden, but of this one, you shall not eat. And then the serpent comes to the woman and places a question mark over this. Did God really say that you shall not eat of this tree? Did God say that you could not have anything from any tree in the garden? He's, he's questioning and enticing the mind of Eve with a distortion of the Word of God. The Word of God has always been and will always be the primary battleground. And from its corruption springs every single kind of other error. It was the same in Peter's day. One of the things that we read here about the false teachers is that they were promising freedom, we're told in verse 19. They're promising freedom to new converts. Later on in chapter 3, in verse 15, 
Peter there mentions the fact that Paul had written to these very same Christians before. And of course, we know that one of Paul's themes, one of the ideas that he is fond of speaking about, fond of writing about, is that of freedom. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Peter says also, at the end of the book, that Paul's letters have some things in them that are difficult to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. It's very likely, therefore, that at least some of the false teachings that Peter is addressing in this letter are in response to these false teachers twisting some of Paul's own words, own writings. The point, however, is that even Peter himself has to address, he has to rebuke, and he has to correct errors that spring from a corruption of Scripture. The passage we're in today has, since the time of Peter, also become the soil out of which a particularly soul-destroying and dangerous error has arisen. Many people have pointed to verse 20 in particular to argue that genuine, born-again, spirit-sealed Christians can lose their salvation. That is to say that you can, at one time, be really justified from your sins. God has forgiven you. He has washed you clean The blood of Christ was spilled on your behalf. You were adopted. You were made an heir of the kingdom of God. You were given the Holy Spirit. And then you fall away. Apostasy is the abandoning of the faith by those who were indeed truly Christians. Verse 20 is one of the verses that is said to support this. Verse 20 again says, For if, after having escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, defeated, mastered, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And it is rightly pointed out that this is the language of conversion. They escaped from the defilements of the world. There was a conversion. There was a change. But we have to clarify that by conversion... I am not referring to the more holistic, 
biblical doctrine of conversion that includes the doctrine of the new birth, regeneration, adoption, election. I'm simply saying by conversion, I'm using that term in the sense of you've, you've changed from one point of view and from one set of actions to another. In that sense, this is speaking about conversion. These people were at one time dominated by the world. They escaped the world through a knowledge of Christ, and now they've returned. They changed their lives, and now they've returned. In that sense, Peter is indeed speaking of conversion. And Peter says of those who had converted to Christ and then afterwards returned to being enslaved to sin that they have become worse off now than they were before. And therefore, as I said, many people point to this passage to argue that a person can lose their salvation. They were converted. Now they are no more. Salvation lost. And I want to address this matter in particular this morning because it is an error. It is an error that uses Scripture as a departure point, and it is an error that can be especially troubling to some. And, and I want to do so, I want to address this matter, not just as a matter of combating dangerous ideas, but I want to do so really for the benefit of your own soul. The danger of embracing a doctrine that teaches that you can lose your salvation is that it can quickly lead down a path of works righteousness such that there is something in you or something you must do in order to be righteous before God. Now, it is certainly the case that a Christian must work. A Christian must do. A Christian must produce good works. A true Christian will indeed do these things, will pursue godliness, but that is the fruit of genuine conversion, not the means by which you stand righteous before God. And believing that your salvation ultimately stands on the shaky ground of your own good works or the strength and righteousness of your own will, the strength of your own faith, will strip you of the joy of salvation and lead you down a path of self-righteousness. So I want to explain why this text should not shake your faith, number one, and then we'll conclude with a few brief remarks on biblical assurance. A subject which also we are going through in Sunday school. So I invite you all, if you want more on the assurance of salvation, what biblical assurance is, 
That is the material of our Sunday school. Now, as we seek to understand this passage, I have six observations that I want to make about it. And the first has to do with Peter's overall purpose in writing this letter. This is a point about the wider context of these statements and what Peter is and what he is not addressing. It is not Peter's purpose in this letter to speak on the nature of salvation. Say that again. In this letter, it is not Peter's purpose to speak on the nature of salvation. He's not addressing how it works. He's not addressing what all is involved in it, what its divine, what its human aspects are. Peter's primary purpose throughout this letter is to urge Christians to pursue godliness and repentance, especially in the face of those who are distorting the gospel, who are enticing people to adorn the gospel with immorality. He's saying, don't go that way. That's a path to death. He's exhorting them all throughout to grow in godliness. He said in chapter 1, verse 8, that godly virtues will keep Christians from being unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said in verse 10 of that same chapter, chapter 1, he says there, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. All of these virtues I've just spoken of, grow in them, increase in them, and if you do, you'll never fall. In verse 12, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. And then in verse 13, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up to literally awaken you by way of reminder. I want you to know these things. I want you to know what a Christian looks like. They don't look like those false teachers. All those people you're hearing right now who are saying, we have freedom, and it's perfectly okay to, to, to pursue all kinds of sensuality in the world. Christians don't look like that. They look like this in chapter 1. And you pursue that. You confirm your calling and election by growing in these things. And I'm going to tell you about this, and I'm going to tell you about it over and over again. I'm going to remind you of these things. This is what a Christian is. When you come to the last chapter, it's the very same thing. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And then finally, at the very end of the book, he urges Christians to take care that they not be carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. 
This is what I'm really concerned about. You don't don't listen to all those false teachers. You don't be carried away with them. You listen to these words, you pursue godliness. That's my concern. That's why I'm writing. This is Peter's aim. It is not a full doctrinal exposition of salvation, conversion, justification, as you might find in other letters. His whole purpose is to exhort Christians to be faithful and godly. And this is an important point to remember because, for one thing, just on a purely textual level, it informs the context and the subject matter. It informs how we understand the statements that he's making throughout. But for another thing, we must remember, we must remember that Peter was a pastor. And a pastor must not only know biblical doctrine, a pastor must also know how to apply those doctrines and when to apply those doctrines. If you have, for example, a person who claims the name of Christ and is living in rampant immorality, you don't have a meeting with that person and speak to them about the great eternal blessings of predestination and election. Look, I I know you are living in this sin. You're swamped in this sin. You've told me you've been living in this sin forever. Let's just reflect on how great it is that before you were ever born, God chose you. you. You don't bring that doctrine to bear on that issue. That's a true doctrine being misapplied. Now what you do is you bring to bear on that straying person the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of repentance, the doctrine of perseverance. You call them to turn from their sin lest they die and prove themselves to be unbelievers. I remember being at the uh, Together for the Gospel conference some years ago. There was a panel. John Piper was on the panel, and he was asked a question on how to deal with someone who is steeped in pornography. What do you say to that person? What's your pastoral wisdom, Pastor John? And a lot of people, it's like the only tool they think Scripture supplies with them is to speak on the love of God. I know you're swimming in all of this immorality right now, but isn't the love of God just so much better than what is enticing you right now? It's as if everything has to come back to the love of God. Scripture, though, provides us with all kinds of doctrine and applies them in a variety of ways. So Piper was asked, what would you say to this person? 
And Piper, rightly, did not go down the route of giving an exposition on the doctrine of the love of God. He asked, what do you say to someone in this situation? And he, in his thick Texas accent, sort of in a surprising way, no one was expecting, said, gouge out your eyes lest you burn in hell. You are standing, no, not standing, falling off a cliff right now. The bottom is about to hit. You don't just try and make little changes in your routines here and there. You have to understand the gravity of the matter. And what does he do? He goes to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount on how to deal or what level of seriousness you should understand adultery, particularly in the heart. And what does Jesus say? Right? If someone is looking at a woman to lust after her, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. What do you do? Pluck your eye out. Do whatever is necessary to cut off what is causing the sin. Now, of course, that's not saying literally go out and do this, right? He's capturing the gravity of the matter. And, and that's what Piper was saying. What, what do you say to someone who's been swimming in this for, for so long? Cut your eye out. Because if you don't, you're going to hell. It doesn't matter what you're saying with your lips, how much you're praising Jesus and saying how sweet Jesus is when your whole life is living in darkness. Darkness and light cannot have fellowship. If we say that we are in the light while we're walking in darkness, we lie. We have to understand the gravity of the matter. Piper was applying the right doctrine to the right situation. He was applying the doctrines of sin, of repentance, and of perseverance. That's what a pastor should do. That's what Peter is doing as well. He's writing to Christians who are surrounded by false teachers, some of whom have probably already been influenced by these teachers, they will likely continue to be plagued by them, and he's warning them against the dangers of becoming enslaved to sin. And he's calling them to confirm their calling and election by growing in godliness. So that's an important point, very important point. He is not writing, again, about the nature of salvation, but with concern he is exhorting the church to holiness. A second point also concerns the larger context of chapter 2 in particular, and it's about who Peter is addressing in this chapter as a whole. 
who is the subject of his warnings and denunciations. Peter is speaking about people who identify themselves with Christ and yet are living totally contrary to that claim. Chapter 2, verse 1, they are and there will be false teachers among you. They are, chapter 2, verse 13, they are feasting with you. They are part of your fellowship meals. They are identified with the body of Christ. Verse 18, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely or just escaping from those who live in error. Those who are, who are just escaping. This is a reference to new converts. They're around new converts. And they're enticing them to sin in the name of Christ. Okay, so these are people who are still maintaining that they're Christians. They follow Christ. They sing psalms and hymns on Sunday. They say, praise the Lord. They believe in the scriptures. They believe in the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Freedom! And Peter is saying, of these, for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Now this also is a real pastoral issue. I've had many conversations with Christians before who, who know someone personally, oftentimes, oftentimes, someone they love, family member, a close friend. And this person claims to be a Christian, and yet they live like the devil. There's no change in their life, or if there had been at one time, that, that's no longer the case. But because this person was baptized or because they made a profession at one time or they went to church at one time or they prayed a prayer at one time, Christians think, surely this person is a believer. Surely this, this person is a Christian. Because why? Because they, they, they say they believe in Jesus. So they're saved, right? They can't bring themselves to face the reality that the person may not be a Christian, no matter what is coming out of their mouth. And the further danger of this is that it keeps a lot of people from confronting that sinning professor. They would rather maintain a false hope than to discern the urgency of the matter and correct them. And so the sinning brother or sister in the name of Christ continues on in their sin, continues blaspheming the way of truth, living a life of ungodliness, all the while believing that the gates of heaven are open to them. 
And oftentimes we have opportunities in concern and in love to say, I know you say you love Jesus, but the way you're living right now is saying something totally different. And if you continue down this road, you will stand before the Lord and you will hear the words that no one ever wants to hear. Depart from me, for I never knew you. But we don't warn them. Because we'd rather oftentimes hold on to a hope that isn't grounded in anything biblical, but is more so grounded in traditions. Well, Second Peter shows us how to think through these matters. He speaks of apostates as those who, to all appearances, to all outward appearances, were at least at one time converted. They escaped the defiling deeds of the world. There was clearly, at one time, a change in their lives. In fact, we have to assume that they had earned a reputation of being incredibly strong and mature Christians because they had gained a status to become teachers in the church. That's how large of a reputation they had earned amongst other Christians. These are mature Christians. They've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Let's make them teachers. That's how Christian these people looked. They looked genuine. They looked as if they were born again. But what Peter is showing throughout the letter is that even though they are continuing to maintain their identity with Christ, their lives are proving otherwise. They are demonstrating by their actions, to use the language of verse 14, that they are in fact accursed children. So, who Peter is addressing is also an important point to remember. These are people who are leaders among Christians. And yet, they are living in such a way that their lives are proving their profession false. Third, I want to get more specific. We've seen that the context of chapter 2 is addressing the presence of false teachers, but I want you to also see that verse 20 itself is still addressing these same false teachers. So verse 20 again says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, some people argue that this is a reference to Christians in general. That it ties in with the recent converts who were said in verse 18 to be barely escaping. So those who are barely escaping in verse 18 are the same as those who have escaped in verse 20. Now, while there is 
I would say certainly a warning to every Christian okay, to heed. This is not who Peter is referring to. Peter is giving here in verse 20 a further explanation of what he says in verse 19. If you look with me there in verse 19, there he, he speaks of the false teachers who are promising new converts freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. And then he explains why they are not free, but why they themselves are slaves. For, he says, meaning let me now explain further what I just said, whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved, then in verse 20, for, let me explain further what I just said, if they have escaped the false teachers and then are again overcome, they are now worse than before. This is how they're slaves while proclaiming that they are free. These are false teachers who have become worse because they are in a state of mind where they believe, you know, I've, I've tried the old way before. I've done this, right? I, I accepted Jesus. I've, I've walked in accordance with what the apostles were saying, refraining from this immorality. I've, I've done that, been there, done that. I, I know that's not true because I've tried it. I know the better way. I know the free way. They've become now even more hardened to the truth than they were before. And so we must bear in mind that the apostasy that is being described here in verse 20 is that still of the false teachers. Now, why does this matter? It matters because of our fourth point, which is about the nature and end of false teachers. This is also something that we have seen as we've been going through chapter 2, but it's important to remember how Peter describes these very false teachers all throughout chapter 2, especially because this tells us how we're to understand his words here. As far as their end, what is going to come of them, this is what Peter says about them throughout chapter 2. Verse 1, they are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 3, their condemnation is from long ago. Their condemnation precedes them. It's something they were designated for, just as Judas himself was designated the son of destruction and betrayed Christ as a fulfillment of the word of God. This is a condemnation from long ago. In verse 12, they will be destroyed in their destruction. Verse 17, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them. They will face the judgment of God 
and this will be in accordance with God's decrees from long ago. In other words, they don't go from being under judgment as unbelievers to saved as believers to back under judgment again. The, 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 the main, the main under the condemnation has been from long ago, and this judgment is reserved for them despite the fact that they had at one time appeared to be genuine. Notice also what it said about their nature, who they are fundamentally. Verse 17, they are waterless springs. Mist driven by a storm. That they claim to be providing some nutritious substance. You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're in the wilderness, you're thirsty, you see a spring somewhere. Salvation! I'm going to have my thirst quenched. That they claim to have words that are to provide sustenance for the people of God, and yet what comes out of them is nothing. They are waterless. He explains this very image further by what they are saying. They speak loud boasts. They're making bombastic claims, outrageous, excessive statements. You know, when you, when you hear a false teacher, we can think of probably false teachers that, that come to, to mind. Some we considered last week, others we can see all the time. The things that they say are outrageous. You, you, it's either so outrageous that it's like, oh, that's got to be true, or it's so outrageous that it's patently false and yet many believe it. That's what they're doing. They're making loud, boastful claims. They are speaking, we, we read also, of freedom. But their boasts, Peter says, are full of folly, worthlessness. These are, these are claims that are empty. They're just words that don't mean a thing. Like a man who hands you a, a cup of water when you're thirsty and it's got a giant hole in the bottom of it. And as you're drinking it, all of the water is coming out. There's nothing but air. That's who these false teachers are. That's the substance of their claims. Further down in verse 22... Look at what Peter says of them. And, and this is key. He quotes two proverbs. And he says, these proverbs are true of them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. A dog has no real sense. They'll eat just about anything. They see food hanging in the trash, they're going there. 
They just vomited the very food that they just ate. But more food to eat. There's no sense in them at all. That's their nature. That's their creaturely instinct. You understand the filth of pigs too. The point is this. Peter quotes these proverbs to make the point that these false teachers never changed. They've always been dogs. They might have cleaned themselves up for a moment, but their returning to the vomit and the mud reveals what they truly are. In a very real sense, Peter is saying the same thing that John says in 1 John when he himself is speaking of false teachers. And he says in 1 John 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They used to be among us, but they've departed, and that has revealed that they never were of us. For Peter, these false teachers have returned to the vomit so that it might become plain that they are truly dogs, and they never ceased from being dogs. So then, how are we to understand what Peter is saying about verse 20? Take all of these points together, the larger context, what's going on immediately here. We must recognize that what Peter is describing is not their internal nature of the false teachers. When he speaks of false teachers having escaped the defilements, the defiling deeds of the world, he is not speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit giving them new hearts, causing them to be born again, or any such thing. He is speaking about their outward conduct, the deeds of the world that they had left behind. Because of their knowledge of the Lord, because they had heard the gospel, they had been moved in some way by other Christians. Because of this, they had at one time left behind the wicked deeds of the world. They had a moral reformation, a moral change. But they did not continue. They returned back to their old ways, only now they justified those very same deeds by some twisted form of Christianity. They are very much like what Jesus describes in the parable of the sower and the seeds in Matthew 13, where he speaks of some people there who 
immediately received the word of God with joy after hearing it, but either because of tribulation or the cares of the world or the riches of the world, these greedy false teachers, the riches of the world, they fall away and they prove to be unfruitful. And they do so because they don't last. It doesn't matter if at one time they appeared to be genuine. They didn't last. And what they demonstrate is that they were hypocrites from the beginning. The Puritan William Dyer once said that man's, that man's beginnings was in hypocrisy whose end is in apostasy. That man's beginnings was in hypocrisy whose end is in apostasy. How a person ends their walk with Christ reveals if they ever knew him at the beginning. And these false teachers, by their sensuality, by their corruptions and evil, prove that their moral reformation that lasted but for a moment was nothing more than a deceitful work of the flesh. They were hypocrites. And now their hypocrisy was bearing its true fruit. So let me conclude with a final encouragement and exhortation. The encouragement is this. Though there may be those who in error argue that a Christian can lose their salvation the Word of God makes very clear that salvation can never be lost because it was never ours to give or to earn in the first place. Salvation is a sovereign work and gift of God. It is rooted in eternity and specifically in the eternal love of God, which means we don't determine it. As, as it was with, with Jacob and Esau, before either one of them had ever done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose in election might stand, he said to them, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Salvation is rooted in the will of God. God chooses from before the foundation of the world those who are His, as Ephesians 1 teaches. Christ came into the world to keep and not to lose any whom the Father had given to Him, as John 6 teaches. There is not a single sheep whom he knows by name, who can be snatched out of his hand, as John 10 teaches. Those who were elected and predestined will be glorified, and therefore nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Romans 8 teaches. God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills, as Romans 9 teaches. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, as Philippians 1 teaches. 
We could multiply these even more. But the promise that we have as those who have been purchased and ransomed by the blood of Christ is that we belong to him and nothing. Neither tribulation, nor distress, nor persecution, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor danger, or sword. Nothing shall ever be able to separate us from him. His blood secured us. If you are Christ, he will keep you to the end. He will prepare you for that grand wedding and make you spotless and without blemish before him. That's his will. And no one can thwart that will. Which leads to my exhortation. The sweet, glorious, infinitely beautiful truths of the gospel of election, of the sovereignty of God, do not give us then a license to sin or to be apathetic. It is the abuse and the twisting of these truths that lead people to sin or to indifference about godliness. What does Peter call us to do with the truths of our calling and election? He says, make them sure. Prove them. God has chosen you. God has called you. God has elected you. He has saved you. Prove them. How? Grow. Grow in these virtues. Which means you do not act like the false teachers who prove themselves to be hypocrites by living in sin. Rather, with the strength of God, knowing that the Spirit of God dwells within you and that it is God's will and determination to make you godly before Him. That's what he's working in you. That's what he will make you to be. That's the power that is at work within you. Therefore, be godly. God's going to make you holy, okay? Pursue holiness. And you have all of his divine strength at your back and in your front and within you. Strengthening you and making you to be as Christ. You pray, you resolve, you determine, you strategize, you work, you cultivate godliness. You don't do this in order to earn the favor of God. That's there. That's secure. Now, that's true freedom. You're free from condemnation. And you're free from sin, which makes you free to righteousness. You can and be in the strength of God Almighty, be godly. You pray, you resolve, you determine, you make each day a day that you will get out of bed and you will say to yourself, every decision that I make today will be a decision to please God and to spite the devil. Everything I do today, I'm going to honor the Lord and I'm going to make the devil real mad. 
When my children are acting up, it would, it would really please Satan if I just flew off in a rage at him. No, I'm going to fly off in a rage with the devil by lovingly correcting my children. It would please the devil if I neglected to hear from the beautiful voice of God in his word. It would please him if I said, ah, I don't have time for that today. But you know what? I'm going to make him mad. I'm going to dive into the word of God. I'm going to savor it as I read through it and as I hear the divine revelation of God. It would please the devil if I did not love my wife well. I don't want to please him. I want to please the Lord. So I'm going to spite the devil and love my wife. Make every single decision a decision to go to war on the side of God. You have God going before you. You have God in your rear. You have God within you. You go to war and you spite the devil and you do so by being godly. That's my exhortation to you this day. Make every day a day where you wake up to please God, to spite the devil. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in your word, we find riches, we find wisdom, we find examples to follow, examples to avoid. In your word here, we, we find examples of those who are twisting the gospel of Christ and who are adorning a false gospel with immorality. Lord, we desire not to go down that path of destruction, but to stay on the straight and narrow that leads ultimately to the celestial kingdom of God. As we walk in our lives through this pilgrimage, we are day by day met with battles to be fought. And you have called us to go into battle, and to pick up a sword, and to wage war. And so we pray, I pray for each one of us, that every day we would remember and recognize and resolve to fight the good fight of the faith. That we would pursue godliness. And that in your strength we would grow in Christ-likeness. Holding on to your promises that you will keep us to the end. So that once we finally reach into the, the borders of Canaan, you will bring us through to the promised land. But be with us, Lord, as we seek to be holy as you are holy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.